Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to another edition of the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. Ryan Ray in because Josh Shelton had a baby and he is out. I, of course, am the Cal Ripken of podcasting. I don't miss a, I don't miss a show. Um, but since Josh is... Oh, I don't know. How should we how should we call Josh? Who gets hurt a lot? I don't know. He's uh he's fragile and flimsy and misses a lot of episodes. So we called on our trusty friend David Blackman to step in. David, how are you doing today, sir? Hey, give Josh a break, man. He's on paternity leave now. <laughs> yeah, he'll be back, I think he said in October. I think that's when he said paternity leaves up, so he's gonna take off <laughs> <laughs> a few <Good> months. <laughs> he's he's got that Canadian work ethic. So he'll be <laughs> So, anyways, it's good to have you on, David. Um, real quick, let's kind of recap for maybe some new listeners or listeners who are familiar with you. Why don't you kind of give the the brief bio of, of who you are and what you do and where people can find all your stuff at? Sure. I'm a 40-year veteran of the oil and gas industry, spent most of my career working regulatory and legislative issues for several large companies like Burlington Resources, which uh, ultimately was bought by ConocoPhillips, uh, Shell, El Paso Corporation, which was absorbed by Kinder Morgan, uh, Lynn Energy, and uh, now I'm a consultant, kind of semi-retired, but not really. I work as much as I ever did, I think, and uh, still consulting in the industry and uh, doing a variety of other things. I write for for Forbes online at their website, Forbes.com. You can just go to that landing page and search for David Blackman and all my stuff will come up. I am uh, the editor for Shell Magazine, a, a industry publication that covers tries to cover everything going on in, in the Shell business. It's a bi-monthly publication, and uh, it's a really good read uh, that, that folks ought to be accessing. We have a lot of stuff on there that doesn't get reported elsewhere, and uh, it's always a good read, and the, the address for that is ShellMag. Dot com. And then I do political commentary on my own website, dbdailyupdate.com. So I'm okay. everywhere. All over yeah. the there you go. So dbdailyupdate.com kind of has the aggregate of all that David does. We'll link to that. We'll link to showmag.com. And we've got a four-piece from you, David. So we will link to that in the show notes. And then listeners can go in there and um, find out more if they're not familiar with you. But for old listeners that have been around for a while, they... They are quite familiar with you. So let's start. We've got a piece that from Forbes that you've pinned that we'll get to in a second. First, let's kind of talk about the Port of Corpus Christi. Um, it's a regular theme on this show. For a while, we were kind of frustrated with the, I know, I believe you were as well. It was, just, it was taking, you know, so long to get anything done. But it feels like now we finally are getting some traction down there in the port. Um, from your analysis, what's going on and are we heading in the right direction finally? We are heading in the right direction. They were able to kick off their uh, project to deepen and widen the main channel. Uh, Finally got the funding through Jeff Cloud, Congressman Jeff Cloud, who I'm uh, actually writing a cover story for Shell Magazine about this month, um, was able to secure the funding necessary to get that uh, project started. It's a $400 million project that will take about three years to complete. They kicked it off in late May, and uh, they're very, very happy about that. And um, the Port of Corpus Christi, you know, we've talked about I know I've talked about it here on your podcast, actually, and written about a lot. It's a crucial port for crude oil exports here in Texas, and 
really for the whole country um, on a daily basis, probably 30 to 40% of all crude exports from the United States traverse out of that particular port. So uh, getting it uh, deepened and widened so it can handle the biggest class of oil carriers, the so-called VLCC, very large crude carrier tankers that uh, hold about 230,000 barrels of crude oil. Uh, that's very important because we have a lot more oil being produced here in Texas and elsewhere, and uh, it's just going to keep coming. And, you know, we talked on the, the show a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember who, maybe Plains, um, has announced that they're going to build infrastructure that goes from, basically, it kind of connects everything. You've got from Cushing to Wichita Falls to Midland, and you got lines down to Corpus, um, over to Houston, which really kind of brings things together. And if you have multiple ports that can do the same functionality, now you can you can move all all over the state a lot better in theory. Um, so if you have you know a delay at a certain port here, you could get the oil to somewhere else, which then could get it out of the country. So that should be a good thing as well. Oh, it's tremendous. Yeah, and uh, Plains isn't the only pipeline company. I mean, Plains, you're right. That system they're building kind of interconnects everything and brings oil, not just from the Permian Basin, but also from Cushing, Oklahoma, where, which is a, for people who don't know, is a big hub uh, where a lot of major pipelines interconnect, big storage hub for crude oil. And uh, yeah, their system is a big, big deal. I think it's a million barrel per day capacity pipeline system. Um, but there's several other Howard Energy partners building a line. You know, there, there are four or five different pipelines in the work that would bring crude to the Texas Gulf Coast either at Corpus Christi, Houston, Brownsville, even to Freeport. The port of Freeport is undergoing a major expansion as well. As everybody's trying to get you know, get ready with new export capacity to handle the, you know, the production in the Permian just continues to rise, even though the rig count continues to fall. Overall production is continuing to rise and we don't have the refining capacity here in the United States to handle this grade of crude that's coming out of the Permian, this light, sweet crude. And so uh, every incremental barrel that's produced from here on out is going to have to be exported. So it's uh, we need the capacity anywhere we can get it. Okay. I mentioned we have a piece that we're going to get into in a second um, that you just released. I guess it was yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. But I want to ask you, you wrote an article, and I think we had you on to talk about it. I know we talked about it on the show at the beginning of the year, and it was like your kind of your seven predictions. And one of your predictions was, yeah. no matter what you write, <laughs> you're going to get something wrong because the industry has changed. You know, it's always changing. So now that we're halfway through the year, what was the one thing that you would say that maybe, um, you know, hindsight being 2020, that you thought would be different, if anything, than it is right now? Well, I mean, I didn't obviously did not anticipate the high volatility in, in crude prices. Um, I, I did kind of, you know, at the end, so we're almost at the end of the first half of the year, and I, I actually predicted that the price for WTI would be right at $60 at the end of the first half. Let's see where it is right now. Almost 58 Friday. So I'm, I'm fairly close on that. It's 57.36 as we record this today. Um you know, I, 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 so I didn't, but, but what I didn't foresee was all the volatility. You know, I really thought, frankly, that the U.S. and China would have a trade agreement by now. I was a little naive about that. Uh, the Chinese, it looked like they were about to agree to something 
at the at the end of May that would have been very favorable, and they backed off at the last minute. And so that was a big miss for me was just you know the volatility and prices. Um, rig count I was fairly accurate on. I, you know I think I've uh, said it would be around a thousand, and right now it's at a thousand. The drilling info daily rig count, which I reference, and um, so you know it's I've. I've one way or another, I had a pretty good record out of those predictions, but, uh, you know, how we got there was a little different than I would have anticipated. Well, it always is, and you can't anticipate stuff like drones getting shot down or tankers colliding and mines going off. And, you know. Well, you know, it's it's a very tough situation with Iran right now. That's, uh, that's really having an impact. Okay. You mentioned China real quick. What is your kind of thoughts on where we're at with China? Because that is something that, that um, I know – you know, if you're bringing in steel specifically, you know, the tariffs yeah. and stuff like that, where, where, where do you think you said you were kind of maybe a little bit behind schedule from where you predicted, where do you think we're at right now? You know, I don't really know. I mean, it's, it was good news last week that, uh, that, uh, Lighthizer, our trade representative who's leading those negotiations was resuming negotiations with the Chinese representatives and, and really good news that, that President Trump and President Xi are going to meet this week at the G20 summit in Japan later this week uh, to talk about all of that. Um, I think another positive sign was, frankly, Xi's recent trip over to Korea, to North Korea, the first time he has traveled to North Korea. And I think everyone needs to understand that, that the situation with North Korea, which is basically has always been a client state of China, is is really intertwined in these trade negotiations. Trump is is a different president than we've had in the past, and he is really attempting to leverage this trade negotiation in a way that that allows Xi or influences Xi to free Kim Jong Un up to really eliminate his nuclear deterrent program over there. His nuclear not deterrent, but his his aggressive nuclear program in that country. Uh, and so he's leveraging all of that into this negotiation. So it's much more complex than just a negotiation over tariffs. It's it's a it's a real negotiation over international strategic international politics. And um, you know the fact that they're back meeting again can only be taken as a good sign. But honestly, I uh, I am not going to express any kind of prediction on what might happen as far as the outcome. <laughs> You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the, that one of the things Ellen and I on Energy Week podcast have talked about is if you read the articles, and I know that you do, um, you will read, like there was an article from Reuters a few weeks ago, that, that this in passing mentioned that Russia and China are the two biggest backers of Venezuela. Or you'll read about China bringing in imports from Iran. And so a lot of times the news media talks about the U.S. versus China, but they don't realize that there's all these other countries that, that both the, China, that the Chinese and the U.S. are, are – have deals with or, you know, they're, they're for or against, depending on which side yeah. you're, you're looking at, and that when they're negotiating, you know, that both countries at the highest level realize that the deals that they're going to do will have impacts on these other nations where they're going to want to do business there as well. So it's it's a lot more complicated, I think, than, as you're saying, than just um, one trade negotiation here because there's other things that will have to be done as well that are probably being considered in these negotiations. Yeah, you know, it's one thing that we don't really get in our daily uh, national news media anymore in this country, mainly because of the death of, of magazines. 
weekly magazines like Time, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report used to do a really good job of explaining all the intricacies of these international uh, kinds of negotiations. But now everyone is so tied up in just clicking on articles on the web and we all have such short attention spans, all these magazines that used to do that kind of in-depth analysis no longer have readership to support them and they're all dying. Uh, they're still, you know, in publication, but frankly, nobody buys them anymore. And so it's something we've really lost in our news media. And, and then the TV networks used to always also have uh, programs, weekly programs that really focused on those kinds of issues like meet the press and face the nation. You used to, when I was growing up, get really good explanations, in-depth coverage of these kinds of complex issues, which now are all just about, you know, what's going on with uh, the latest Democrat subpoena or, you know, what did Trump tweet last Tuesday? And, and, and it just all has gotten lost now. It's a real disservice to the country, uh, you know, and I don't know how that ever gets uh, corrected, frankly. Well, they just need to turn into quality programs like these to get that information. Maybe you and I should do a podcast on all those kinds of issues every week. You know, just but, call Meet Us instead of me. <laughs> there you go. I'm game. I'm game. Okay, so let's get to your your piece from Forbes, Six Reasons Why the Next why the next 10 Days Are Crucial for Oil Markets. So first off, this came out yesterday. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, obviously... I would ask you why you wrote it, but <laughs> it seems the title is pure self-explanatory. Um, walk us to how we got up to this point to where 10 days are theoretically this crucial for the oil market. So kind of some stuff yeah. we talked about, maybe some stuff we had talked about. How do we get to a spot to where we're looking at a 10-day window um, that we, we really need to follow? Well, it is kind of amazing. You know, we do have this big confluence of events happening over the next 10 days. Um, that are really going to determine where the markets go uh, for the rest of the year and maybe longer than that. We have, uh, again, the president meeting with President Xi later this week uh, and the outcome of that meeting. I suspect there will be a major press conference. They'll hold a press availability after they meet. And uh, my expectation is it will they will couch it in as positive terms as possible. Um, and, and give an indicator of where those negotiations are heading. Uh, who knows? They could even, with their representatives meeting uh, every day for the past week uh, in, in leading up to that meeting, they could even possibly announce some sort of a deal, although I, I don't think we should assume that. But that's huge. That has a huge impact on, on where crude oil prices will go because the concern is – that the current trade war uh, tariff battle, China, China is losing very badly. Their economy is suffering greatly from it. And if they don't get relief from U.S. tariffs soon, you know, uh, then their economic growth for the remainder of the year will be very slow. Well, you know, the growing China economy, the growing economy in India and the rest of the Pacific Rim countries has been one of the biggest drivers of rising demand for crude oil that has allowed this ongoing boom in the Permian to exist. So the market has been very concerned about the Chinese economy slowing and a trade deal uh, getting done finally would be a, a very bullish influence on crude prices. But, but then on Monday and Tuesday of next week, you also have OPEC and the OPEC plus countries, Russia, Mexico, and others 
uh, meeting to determine, you know, where they go with their export limitation agreement that has been so influential over crude, the growth of crude prices over the last two years. And, uh, you know, everyone expects them to extend it through the end of the year. Um, but if that meeting should fall apart for some reason, then holy cow, it's going to be carnage in the oil markets because, you know, OPEC and, and Russia and Mexico between them are probably holding up to 2 million barrels a day of production potential off of the market thanks to that agreement. And that's the only reason why we've had a rising crude price. Uh, had that agreement not ever come about, we'd still be sitting in a, an industry depression with $30 oil prices and there would be no boom in the Permian Basin. So those two meetings, more than any other factors uh, that I listed in there, are really crucial um, to this, uh, to where crude prices are gonna go for the rest of the year. And then the third thing I talked about uh, towards the end of that piece was the fact that on July 1st, you know, the U.S. industry is, is all these thousands of corporations and privately owned companies who have their own internal budgeting processes. And in the corporations, you know, they tend to revise their drilling budgets uh, mid-year, every year. All those companies go through a mid-year revision. Uh, and, and what I always try to do is take a look at, you know, what was the market doing in April and May when those companies really did most of the work on establishing their second half of the year budgets. And if you remember April and May was when all this volatility, price volatility really started happening. And uh, unpredictability in prices is always a bearish factor on when companies are going through these budget revisions. My suspicion is in conversations I've had with some of my industry contacts is that you're going to see a, another pullback in drilling budgets uh, during the second half of the year from these these big companies that are drilling most of the wells because they were having all that price uncertainty while they were going about their budget revisions. So I really think that although we've seen uh, the rig count, uh, the drilling info rig count anyway, is kind of plateaued this month right out of 1,000 rigs. I really think that once we get into July and, and August, we're probably going to see another drop in that rig count down to 950 and possibly even as far down as 900 by the end of this year as these companies, you know, and, and it's not just the volatility in prices. These companies are still, they remain under pressure from shareholders to increase investor returns to, to the shareholders. And so that has also caused them to pull back on drilling and focus on buying back stock and other programs that they're designed to increase return to their shareholders. So, there's a lot of factors in there that are going to, I believe, result in another fall on the rig count for the second half of the year. Although, you know, every company, they, they, they've become so much better at increasing per well recoveries that overall production will continue to rise, but at a slower pace than we've seen the first half of the year. Does all that make sense? Boy, that was a long-winded answer. Right? <laughs> no, that's good. Good. A lot of good stuff there. <laughs> Let's go back to Mexico specifically because you mentioned them. Yeah. There was a piece on Reuters that came out a couple weeks ago talking about Mexican uh, how the Mexicans uh, hedge their oil and how I, – I didn't realize this, David, and I'm sure you did, but three years of hedging. There, Yeah, 2009, 2015, and 2016, according to Reuters, 
were enough to cover the cost of hedging for more than a decade and a half. Um, I, I didn't write, well, we talked about the Mexican hedges before, and the Mexicans right now are, 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 according to Reuters, a little bit behind the pace of what they normally do. Um, with the OPEC Plus meeting, they're kind of maybe slowing down on their hedges. Um, should that mean anything? Because Mexico, as you know, is it's kind of a, a weird bag. They, they, they were going to open it up, be a little bit more free market. Obrador came in, he kind of reined that in, it feels like. Um, sure. You read the articles about Pemex and the, the trouble they're in. Any insight on what's going on down there? No, I, I really don't have any insight on what's going on down there. I mean, I, you know, Pemex has always been uh, an aggressive hedger, uh, and, and many, many U.S. companies are as well. It's, it's unless you're inside those companies and, and in on those conversations, it's always hard to know what the thought process was it just in, in, that, that was going on internally. Um, that prompted them to enter into the big hedge risks that they, right. they do. You know, U.S. companies do it mainly because they want to have predictable cash flow, uh, mm-hmm. which allows them to plan their business in advance. And, you know, I've been in companies that have have had hedges as far out as three or four years uh, for most of their production, just so that they can plan the business properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emmett's, you know, it, it, that company is so overloaded with debt, which is one of the reasons why uh, former president Enrique Peña uh, Nieto um, wanted to do those reforms to encourage international investment uh, to help Emmett do its business and try to work down that debt load. That really hasn't happened yet. And so a lot of what Pemex is doing is just trying to stay afloat uh, because right. the, their debt load is extremely heavy. Uh, and they have a hard time meeting their debt obligations. Right. Uh, but otherwise, I, I don't have any insight on what they're Sure, sure. No, 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 it's fine. I just something we've, I kind of been following from afar. I didn't know if you had any insight. Okay, you mentioned the rig count might go down, might plateau. It, it's not going to grow is, is, is the short version there. That sounds scary for obviously some of our listeners who are in the upstream business. It could mean, you know, reduction of their jobs. You didn't yeah. mention the inference with pipelines. We talked about pipelines um, and how there was a backlog. Um, from all the reports I've read, it feels like we're, we're clearing that out. We're on schedule to clear that out. Um, but for the midstream industry, part of the industry, if we do see this uh, plateauing or, or decline um, through the second half of this year into the first half of next year, um, the midstream part of the business, though, should still be pretty viable. Or, or would oh, that be my yeah. take as well? Yeah, no, they're, yeah, they're going to be in a big build-out phase through probably through the end of 2021 here in Texas. And, you know, there are a lot of other projects going on across the country as well. The midstream part of the business, you know, when we talk about booms, we we tend to focus on drilling because that's the most visible activity uh, that everyone sees and, and, you know, uh, most of the jobs are in. But the midstream part of the business is uh, in a real expansion right now. And, uh, and, And as is the downstream, when you, when you, particularly when you include not just refining, where there are major expansions going on of several of the largest refineries in the country, like like ExxonMobil's Baytown refinery and the Motiva refinery down there, and the Phillips 66 expansions going on in their refinery uh, operations, huge expansions. And then you have all the LNG hardware infrastructure going into place along the Gulf Coast in Louisiana and Texas as well, and then all the port expansions happening those segments of the business, because of that production boom, 
all those jobs and all that activity flows downstream. And uh, I think you're right. I mean, I think we're going to have worked out of the constraints in the Permian Basin as far as takeaway capacity, probably by completely by mid-year next year, the last six months of next year we're probably going to have actually a, a fairly large surplus of pipeline capacity for a little while, right. which will be good for the producers. But yeah, I mean, midstream business is in a, in a big boom of its own. Okay. So obviously we've, we've, we've already kind of alluded to the fact that we can't predict the future because crazy things happen, but, but help me understand here. Um, there's a lot of things in the marketplace right now that, could emphasize that the price should be a little higher. It is being held down by some of the things that you mentioned. Um, and you also said that the producers, because of some of the tensions, have rolled back their, their, their production schedule for the second half of this year. So let's let's say, just theoretically, um, the next two months, China, the U.S. get their deal done, the OPEC Plus meeting goes in the favor for the U.S. shell producers, and those rig count numbers do come down significantly um, through the end of the year. As we get to the start of next year, um, that could bode well for a, a nice start to 2020 if that all kind of shakes out. Yeah, it sure could. I mean, you know, because all of those would be bullish outcomes for, for crude prices. And, you know, as you get into October of this year, if you want to kind of gauge it, look at where crude oil prices are at the 1st of October, because that's when these bigger companies are going to really be starting in earnest getting their budget set for the first of next year. And if, if crude prices have firmed up, up over $60 and it looks like, you know, it's a fairly stable market situation and there's, you know, a rant, the situation with Iran has calmed down and yeah, OPEC plus is still sticking to their quotas. Then probably you're going to see some pretty strong drilling budgets go in place with these companies at the start of next year, because what's happening internally at these companies, you have all these engineers and all these uh, uh, production guys, drilling guys and gals in these companies who want to go out and drill wells. They want to produce oil and gas. That's what their job is. And as they have to pull back on their budgets, it creates all this pent up desire to go drill more wells. So, <laughs> so the bias, uh, if you have a, pretty strong and, and pretty stable prices up over $60 here come October, the bias is going to be to to build up some more healthier drilling budgets for the first of the year. Okay. Another thing you mentioned was there's a pressure from Wall Street to increase profits. This is nothing yeah. new. It's been talked about for a long period of time. And with the fact that oil hasn't ever hit $100 a barrel recently, um, <laughs> we will continue to see these headlines. So my question is, we, we, we talked a lot on the show, as you can imagine, about the, uh, the Chevron, the Oxy, the Anadarko deal a month mm-hmm. or so ago. Um, Chevron's sitting with an extra billion laying around, you know, looking to spend. Yeah, they just got a um, big bonus, didn't they? They got a big bonus. Um, <laughs> and and there is there has been this consistent pressure, though, on Wall Street to focus on returns. Um, it seems like to me, David, that it makes sense long term, especially the Permian, for these larger companies who can kind of do all three phases of the game to, to, to begin to acquire these assets, to begin yeah. to acquire this acreage, um, with Wall Street pressuring the producers to focus on their, their profits, that would make them actually more easy for a larger company to pick up potentially. Um, yeah. What's your take on where we're at with some of the M&A activity uh, as we move into the second half of this year? 
Well, I think you're going to see quite a bit of it. You know, uh, after the Oxy deal, you know, you saw Devon sell all of their Canadian stuff to, to a Canadian company. And, and uh, you've seen some of these other producers in the Permian Basin start actually talking publicly about how their company is an attractive takeover target. Parsley Energy CEO said something like that on Friday, how he believes that they, their company is an attractive takeover target for anybody. Uh, so when you see executive teams start talking talking in those terms publicly, that you know that they are uh, out there looking for deals. Uh, you know, who knows? Parsley may have somebody actively looking at them. There's all sorts of rumors flying around uh, about Exxon and Chevron and BP and Shell looking, uh, you know, to do something out there in the Permian. And there are a ton of. I wrote a piece back in in. Uh, early May or mid-May about uh, all the attractive takeover targets that are out there in the Permian. And, uh, you know, there, there is no shortage of, of really nice assets out there waiting to be sold to a, to a bigger company. Yeah. And this podcast is open for a takeover as well. So I don't know who's <laughs> listening, but we, we are open to a takeover. Or if you don't want to listen anymore, we'll take a $1, million, uh, $1 billion don't listen to us anymore fee. I don't know who negotiated that deal. Like, how do you how do you negotiate that? I, I mean, I had to pay people to hang out with me. I've never been paid to not hang out with someone. How does that work? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> People, people choose not to hang out with me for free, though. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I know the feeling. Okay. Um, I think the final thing I want to talk to you about is you mentioned the export needs. Uh, we talked about that a minute ago. Um, the refining capacity. Now, if you get online, especially on Twitter, there's a big debate over the crude quality. Um, now, on Energy Week, about a month ago, we had on someone from... Uh, drilling info, SARP, um, and he came on to talk about IMO 2020, and he essentially said that our crude here in the U.S. is really favorable for the IMO 2020 changes. Um, and with that being said, there is refinery constraints globally because of just how the oil and gas market has been set up for the past forever until yeah. the show revolution. Where are we at, in your opinion, um, on refinery changes, new refineries being built, retooled? Uh, because it seems like, you know, we... we We've got a lot of oil to, to get out there, but the market isn't necessarily fully capable of handling all that we can produce. Well, that's right. And it, so it's it's first thing everybody has to understand is it's extraordinarily time consuming and expensive, capital intensive to to expand a refinery or build a new refinery. It's very hard to get it permitted. But part of what ExxonMobil is doing with that Baytown refinery is trying to build additional capacity to refine their own Permian production uh, that is going to continue to increase dramatically over time. And, and several other expansions going on in some of those big refineries are doing the same thing because they, they want to be able to refine the product here domestically. But by and large for these refiners, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's cheaper and more cost effective for them to continue to allow that light sweet crude to be exported and just, uh, continue to refine the heavier crudes coming in from places like Venezuela and Canada and Mexico. And, and so, you know, you're not going to see what you're not probably going to see at all is these big refining companies shutting down trains that, that are there to refine the heavier crudes and converting them to refine light sweet crudes. But when you see a, a refiner going through a big expansion project, 
uh, chances are pretty good. That's that's going to be designed to to refine the light sweet improvements being produced here. Right, and leads me to my final thing. I guess now um, it, it seems that the folks who are more down on the viability of the of the shale oil to be used internationally, um, they talk about that it's not you know not real oil or, or this that and the other. Um, the problem that I have is that you know we have large companies putting their own money up, and I'm not a I'm not an old gravity guy. I'm not saying I got the the chemistry and all that stuff behind it. The problem I do have though is David, is you see these large companies investing real dollars, and it's not like you know if me and you were to start a production company tomorrow, you know we could flip it to somewhere else. Exxon can't sell up. They they've right. I mean they, they, I guess they could sell theoretically to Aramco, but they're at a certain level. We get to the top. It doesn't mean that what Exxon Mobile is doing is right because businesses make bad decisions. But it, it feels like all the big guys are moving in this direction. They're making big plays in the in the light sweet crude market. So I have to think that that should give us, despite the analysts, the guys who know it all, it should give us some hope that these guys surely know what they're doing on some level. Well, obviously they do, and I will just tell everybody I can't mention anything by name, but I'm aware of one company from from another huge country, a huge consumer of crude oil that's out there right now trying to secure, and they've talked to me about it, trying to secure a million barrels a day of Permian production to ship over to their country and use in a new refinery they're building. So, I mean, and and CNUC has been trying to secure additional uh, uh, shale production here in the U.S. And CNUC is the, the China's national oil company. It's very attractive overseas, and, and and one of the main reasons is it's so much cheaper to refine light sweet crude into gasoline and diesel or gasoline than it is to try to refine these heavy crudes into. There's far less refining effort that right. goes on here. So so countries are really looking to secure big supplies of this stuff, and 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 it's becoming increasingly attractive over time internationally. So that's why you see Exxon doing that. That's why, it's why you see all the other major oil companies trying to increase their footprint in the Permian Basin because it's the fuel of the future, and 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 you know uh, you want to be in there. You don't want to be out of it. So, um, yeah, I I see all those pieces too. I've never written one. I'm very proud of that. Uh, very viable and. We'll, will continue to be the growth industry in this country for the next several decades. Well, you know, I don't, I don't really have a problem with the pieces. I think it's fun to bring up different ideas and to speculate. It's just that we were talking about some other stuff offline. It seems like sometimes you get in these camps and you just can't get out of the camp. And, you know, right. um, and, and that's, and that's you know, on this show, I'll give you one example where, where Josh and I, we have a struggle, is we are very much free market, very much non-government intervention. But when you read an article about um, a whale blowing up, like we talked about last week with the Patterson whale, and people die, you have to sit back and evaluate, are we too much non-government interventionists? That, that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Um, and, you know, because we, 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 we don't want to say, you know, we don't want to be irresponsible in promoting ideas that would lead people to death because that's a huge concern. It feels like with some of these articles, um, there's just kind of a narrative and there's no reflection that maybe, just maybe they could be wrong. They could be right, but it, it feels like... Um, they kind of get entrenched in these camps. They just got to beat that drum, even well, though there's other data that's con- that, that kind of goes against them. It's hard as a writer. I will say this in their defense. It's hard as a writer, and I've, I've had to do this several times, to, to admit you're wrong about something. Because you stake out a position, you stake out a line of thought, and when it turns out to be wrong, you're reluctant to admit it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just because you're afraid it's going to reduce your, your people who read you. What I found is quite the opposite, that if you're just upfront and honest, right. you know, in, in making my predictions, uh, that piece, I, that follow-up piece I wrote in, in May, I, you know, I was very blunt about the things I'd completely missed, too. Uh, I just think it increases your credibility, but, but others take a different view, and, and they stick to these, um, you know, I compare it to the peak oil people, mm-hmm. right? Peak oil has been a failed theory for 130 years, and there are still people out there trying to make a living being prophets of peak oil theory. Uh, it, it's always going to fail. It's always going to be wrong because the industry's a lot smarter than they give it credit to. But once these people stake out that position, they feel the need to go to any length to defend it. And, and that's, uh, that's too bad because it, it really, in my view, it arms your credibility right. if you admit you're wrong. Well, and, and just to, to use the peak old people as an example, if they were to flip, they would become like a rock star on our side because like, hey, we converted one. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, there's one guy who I won't, again, mention by name who uh, has been a professional pessimist about the shell industry for going on 12 years now that I'm aware of. And, uh, you know, he's never really been right about anything, but he just keeps doing it and making money. So I guess for him, it's been a pretty lucrative thing. Does his name rhyme with smart German? No, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> you didn't say it. You didn't say it. You didn't say anything. <laughs> All right, David. Well, we, we started the show by saying, where are you at? Let's end it by that. Um, Shell Mag, DB Daily Update, Forbes. Um, you got to remind us again, you had a piece that's coming out soon. What was that on again? Oh, uh, Jeff Cloud, Congressman Cloud, who uh, played the uh, big role, I will tell you, big role in securing the funding for the expansion of the Port of Corpus Christi. It's a great story. His personal story is, is a great story as well, and that'll be covered in the piece as well. And that issue of Shell Magazine will be out in mid-August. All right. Well, David, it's good to have you back on again, man, and good to catch up. Yeah, and uh, thanks for your time today. And to the listeners, until next time, keep fun. Thank you.